If you didn't make it for first half, I would encourage you to set your alarms a little sooner so you can make it. Amen? Anyone who is here could tell you and, and, and agree with me that in Jesus' name. Uh, thank you for joining us here again for our second half. And for those of you that are joining us online, we continue to pray for you in Jesus' name. Go ahead and check in today uh, on Facebook with a statement of expectation and then check in after service with a testimony of what God has done for you and help us to continue. If you have your Bibles, real quickly join me in Psalm 103. talking with praise team and, and just feel like this last song they were going to sing is going to be a good altar call so I'm kind of buttoned in after the third song we sometimes will sing four but God just has a way of doing things like that and I feel like the Lord is going to do great things do you believe that Psalm 103 I'm going to just read two verses there verses 11 and 12 it says for as the heaven is high above the earth so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. In Psalm 119, verse 64, if you want to flip over, it's just a few more pages, but that one single verse that I want to read from Psalm 119, verse 64 says, The earth, O Lord, is full of thy mercy. Teach me thy statutes. And for just a little while, I want to preach what the Lord has laid on my heart, which is this title and subject, How Far is the East from the West? Let us pray. Father, let the living word preach the written word. Make my tongue the pen of a ready writer and inscribe your words upon our hearts and in our minds. Open our understanding that we may comprehend your word. Cause every hindrance to be rebuked and cast out and bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we ask it, pray it, believe it, expect it in the majestic and marvelous name of Jesus Christ. And if you love him, would you praise him for a moment? Glory! Hallelujah! You may be seated. The Lord bless you. I greet all of our guests today and welcome you to the Church of Omaha. Amen. I hope to get to meet some of you after. Uh, greet uh, my friends, brother and sister Dykes, the pastors in Ogallala. They were here, she was here for the ladies' uh, conference and decided to stay over today. We're so glad they're here with us. And they're doing a great work there for the Lord in Ogallala. And we just love and appreciate them so much. Glad you are here. All of you joining online, thank you for tuning in. We're glad you're here as well. I am sure that everyone in this room has traveled in some manner before. Um, I've traveled by automobiles and trains and planes and buses and subways and ships and bicycles and horseback and foot. I've been blessed to travel to Africa, Brazil, Canada, France, Israel. And every journey that I've taken, whether it's to Grandma's house or some distant country, every journey I've taken has had a beginning and an ending. But the journey to discover the inexhaustible mercy of God will never end. The Bible says in Psalm 103, 17 that the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear Him. In other words, you can search 
every scripture, every idiom, every word. You can search every historical uh, 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 parallel. You could search every metaphor and you will never exhaust the mercy of God. In the eighth stanza of Psalm 119, this unknown psalmist joins the chorus of worshipers and writers who herald the boundless attributes of mercy of the mercy of God when he states in verse 64 that the earth, O Lord, is full of thy mercy. Teach me thy statutes. From Adam and Eve in the beginning to Jezebel receiving a space to repent and everybody in between and us here today, the audacity of the mercy of God fills the accounts of Scripture. The numerous accounts of the Bible reveal that God's mercy is everlasting. His mercies, according to Lamentations 3, are new every morning. And Micah reveals that he delights in mercy. The psalmist will join others in revealing the ministry of God's mercy. The greatest act of mercy, of course, was when God became flesh to redeem and reconcile us to Himself, purchasing the church with His own blood. Is there anybody here thankful that Jesus purchased your salvation? Hallelujah. In verses 57 through 60, the psalmist will write and he will speak to us about the manner of God's mercy. God's mercy reaches for everyone. Yet unfortunately, not everyone responds. The psalmist will reciprocate in, in his words. If you were to read 57 through 60, for sake of time, I'm not going to read it, but he would reciprocate God's effort to, because he didn't want a self-made religion of cheap grace that requires nothing. True mercy requires something of you. It's not just some sloppy Joe Grace message that you could throw together and keep doing what you want to do and still have mercy. Amen? If you read, again, 57 through 60, I don't, I don't have time to really look at all of these, but if you look at these, these verses here of what the psalmist says, he's saying, God, I'm committed to you. I'm going to obey you. I want your mercy according to your word. When the psalmist thinks of his ways... He turns himself to the direction that God is heading. He knows and he understands that, that those that do right in their own eyes will come to failure. He wants to understand and he, and he wants to, to know the mercy of God. And when he receives it, amen, he's going to do so because he's been obedient. Can I tell you, mercy is not a license to sin. The psalmist realizes this in the eighth stanza of Psalm 119. He knows the accountability that comes with mercy. And like the woman who was cast at Jesus' feet, he doesn't only want to hear, neither do I condemn you. He also commits himself to go and sin no more. That's the manner of mercy. In verses 61 through 63 of the same stanza in Psalm 119, he, he begins to describe the maintenance of mercy. Now, may, mercy is maintained 
when you forgive others as Christ forgave you. The implication of forgiveness is present in verses 61 through 63, even though the term isn't. You see, although the psalmist was robbed by the wicked, he didn't resort to vengeance. He didn't take matters into his own hands. Instead, he says, I have not forgotten thy law. And this attitude that he has indicates that he will let God handle the situation for him. He trusts in God's Word and gives God praise even at midnight. Mm. You see, midnight moments are those times when God seems far away. Darkness and discouragement illustrate these times. But I want to remind somebody today, midnight only means it's the darkest it will get before the sun starts to rise again. It's, it's the farthest you'll get. It's called twilight in some verses of the Bible. It's the farthest you'll get before you start coming back and the sun's going to rise. So you might be in a midnight moment, but I've come to tell you, you can join Paul and Silas who at midnight prayed and sang praises to God. They were in the darkest moment, but they realized if we'll just praise Him, if we'll just pray, something's about to happen. And happen it did. Because while the king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley, sang about a jailhouse rock, the king of kings rocked a jailhouse. Ah! Glory! Mm. But even better than that, even better than the walls falling, even better than every prisoner being freed, was later that same night the jailer and his family were baptized and born again. Let me ask you something. Could someone experience salvation if you were to forgive others and worship God in your midnight moment? I don't believe Paul and Silas were there coincidentally. I believe God said, you know what, I'm going to let some people get stirred up, fired up, and get them in jail because there's a jailer I want to reach. Sometimes we're complaining, God, why am I in this situation? Could it be God has you there because there's a jailer and his family that he wants to save? Well... Uh, I'm feeling it now. Woo! Lord have mercy. Could your extension of mercy reveal how Christ forgave and help your perpetrator experience deliverance? Now I know forgiveness is much easier said than done. But we are most like Christ when we forgive. For He, on a cross, having been whipped and beat and shamed and embarrassed, prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That wasn't just for the Romans gambling on His garments. 
It wasn't just for the religious leaders who were railing on him. It wasn't just for the the thief that didn't repent. It wasn't just for the disciples that ran. It was for you and it was for me. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But we also can look to Stephen who prayed a very similar prayer. While rocks were hitting his body, while he was being stoned and would die shortly, he lifted up his head and he prayed and said, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Can you imagine those hurling the rocks? I believe that in part was what Paul's messenger was, was sent above him. I believe in part that that gnawed at him, he hearing those words, forgive them. So when we forgive, we're most like Christ. Then the psalmist, after talking about the manner and the maintenance of mercy, in the last verse, verse 64, he talks about the magnificence of mercy when he says, The earth, O Lord, is full of thy mercy. Teach me thy statutes. Let me say this plainly. We do not live in a God-forsaken world. We live in a world that has forsaken God. There's a difference. Don't you dare look at your neighborhood. Don't you dare look at those around you. Don't you dare look at the sinners in our community and say they're God forsaken. They're not God forsaken until He comes back and they've not repented. But as long as He hasn't come back yet, as long as salvation is still free, as long as there's still mercy, and as long as there's breath in these lungs and in those lungs, we've got a message to share with the world it's not a God forsaken world and the reason I know this is true is the psalmist could not say that the earth is full of thy mercy start reminding yourself that when you drive by the hell holes that you drive by remind yourself the earth is full of the mercy I'm tired of the devil trying to show me that sin runs rampant I've got a verse that tells me the earth is full of his mercy Jude, in his epistle, brings it to a close, encouraging us to build ourselves on our most holy faith, praying in the Spirit, instructing us to remain in God and His love. As we, in verse 21, it says, Look for the mercy of our Lord Jesus unto eternal life. Then Jude reveals the magnificence of mercy in that we are to give it and show it, helping as many as possible overcome judgment. I am privileged to pastor this beautiful church. It's a spirit-filled church where everyone can be transformed by the hope and healing promise through Jesus Christ. And the longer I pastor, the more I realize how much we've become a place of hope and healing for so many. But the ministry of mercy is not just something that happens on Sundays and Wednesdays. The body of Christ is a place of hope and healing daily. You take hope and healing with you when you leave today. You're not dismissed. You're deployed. We are ambassadors for Christ. We have the ministry of reconciliation. And as our prayer mirrors the prayer of the psalmist, we will be most 
effective. As we join him in becoming a companion of all that fear God and keep his precepts, we will fulfill God's purpose and show the magnificent mercy of God to a world in need. I open this message today reading from a different psalm as well in which David said that as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Now that's Psalm 103.13. In the same Psalm 103, verse 17, he, he tells the other verse I quoted in which it says, His mercy is from everlasting to everlasting. So with all that we know about the ministry of God's mercy, how far is the east from the west? Now, we know east and west poles do not exist. There's a north pole. There's a south pole. But there's not an east or west pole. Such a distance, then, seems to be immeasurable. But last week, while having a Bible study in my study, God showed me something and asked me this question. I was looking at a picture of the tabernacle. Go ahead and put it up. I know it's going to be blurry and you're going to be like, I can't even make it out. So I'll text it to whoever wants it afterwards. You can see what I'm talking about. But I'm looking at this and I was actually studying something else, looking for something else. And this image that you're seeing here would be as if you were in a drone looking down upon the tabernacle that Moses built. The Bible tells us in Hebrews he received the copies of heavenly things and he made it. And so it's as if we were looking down upon it. And near the bottom down here, you enter in and you first come to the altar. That's the first piece of furniture. That's the first thing you would come to. After that is the brazen laver. And then you see that kind of box within the box. That's, that's the, the inside. That's the holy place. And then you've got the most holy place. But you come in there and that's where you've got the the candlestick and the bread and the altar of incense and then the veil and behind that is the Ark of the Covenant. And I'm looking at this and the person who's made this, who's, who's put this together and kind of describing some of the different things, puts the uh, points of the compass that you would see. And so over here to my right and, uh, is, is north uh, and, and over here is south and the top is west and the bottom is east. And as I'm looking at this, God says to me, how far is the east from the west? And then he spoke to me, he says, it's from my sacrifice to my holiness. That's how far. The east is from the west. You see, here's the thing. We all have to enter through his sacrifice. Because we can't save ourselves. But God never intended for any of us to stay in the outer court thanking God for his sacrifice. We've got to make it behind the veil into his holiness, into his presence. Oh, on that Ark of the Covenant, there would be the mercy seat. It's, it was called a seat, but it was really a lid. And it would sit on top of it. And when God told, them to told him, Moses, to design it, he told him to put two angels, two cherubs on it. Which two of you are the most angelic in your family? You and who else? 
Not you? Okay, all right. And you? All right, I need, I need you two angels to come here, all right? You two cherubs, come here. You got pointed at, I'm sorry. So just come over here, okay? All right, angel number one, I need you to stand here. Okay, and you, yep, yep, face this. No, 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 no. There you go. Angel number two here. There you go, face, no, there you go. Now put your hands out and touch each other. There you go. And then look down. When, when God told Moses, just stay there for a minute, okay? When God told Moses to make this, he says, I want you to put two cherubs on it. Their wings are going to touch. Their faces are going to look down into the center of it. Are you getting this image? So when they would carry it on the shoulders of the Kohathites, the, the Levitical priests that would carry this, uh, there was four of them, two in the front, two in the back, people could see this. They could see the representation. It represented what Isaiah saw in his vision. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The cherubs that, that cry out 24-7 around him. They could see a visible manifestation of the presence of God. Are you with me? Thank you. All right. Now, I need you to, to one of you to sit down on that side where you're at, and you sit over here and just, just sit. Just go ahead and sit. You, you can stop touching. You, that's okay. In John chapter 20, we read about two disciples who Mary has come and has saw that the tomb is empty, Mary Magdalene. And she realizes that, oh, no, he's not here. Something's happened. And she runs back and she tells the disciples, and Peter and John race to the tomb. And they get there. They look inside and they see a folded napkin. John believes. They step back out and they, they go back home. But the Bible tells us Mary lingered. And so she's outside the tomb. The tomb would be about the size of, of my study. I, I, I've seen one. I, I've been inside of one. It would be about the size of my study. You know, about, about 12 by 12, 12 by 13, something like that. Uh, uh, and so she steps in. You can read this, John 20, verse 12. She steps in to the tomb herself. And when she steps in, she sees two angels. One sitting at the head where Jesus had been laid and the other at the feet where Jesus had been laid. You know what she saw? She saw the mercy seat. When she stepped in, all of a sudden, wait a minute, I know what this looks like from history. I know what this looks like from what I've been taught in Torah class. I know this represents the mercy seat. Mm -hmm. Angels ask her and they have a conversation. What are you doing here? And she turns and standing in the door is Jesus. She doesn't know it's him. Where have you taken him? She thinks he's the gardener. She's, even though she's seeing this, she's still having all these thoughts. And Where have you taken him? He responds to her by simply saying her name. Oh, let me tell you. We know there's power in the name of Jesus. We just sang about it. We just preached it. We pray in his name a young girl was being filled with the spirit in his name but watch this what happens when Jesus says our name 
the minute he said Mary she realized who he was she understood come here Lucas she understood who he was the King James says he said don't touch me it wasn't that she was touching him and he couldn't she was clinging on to him oh you're alive oh, you're really real he's like Mary don't cling on to me I've not been glorified yet oh but you're real you're alive you called my name she began, listen, she began to remember because Mary Magdalene, scholars believe, was the one thrown at his feet, taken in the act of adultery. I've seen the mercy seat. I've seen the Ark of the Covenant. How far is the east from the west? It's as far as you getting from sacrifice to his holiness. I thank God for sacrifice. I wouldn't be here without it. I myself have to sacrifice. You heard about it this morning. But I've got to get to the place of His holiness. You see, what she was seeing was the sacrifice had been fulfilled. I'm alive now. I have the keys of death, hell, and the grave. I've overcome. And you can have eternal life too. That's what the message was. How far is the east from the west? It's as far as from his sacrifice to his holiness. Thank you. So if anybody ever asks you how far it is, I'll send you that picture. You can show it to them. But this morning when I got here, as is my practice, praying, Looking at my notes. God, is there anything else you want me to say? Am I missing anything? I don't know who's going to be there. I don't know who's going to be watching online. I'm the pastor. I know some things, but I don't know everything. I'm not you, God. You're the sheep of your pasture. What do you want me to say? God began to deal with me to look deeper into something. It's interesting that mercy is mentioned in the eighth stanza, the, the Psalm 119 is set up as 22 stanzas. There's 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. We would say A to Z, so that would be 26 if it was English. It's a left to Tav, that Tav is their Z, so it's 22. So the first eight, one through eight, all begin with a left, the, the Hebrew A. Obviously, the 22nd, Tav. Everything begins with Tav. It's a way to remember. It's called an acrostic. I'm not trying to bore you with details. Just give you enough information to understand what I'm saying. So the eighth letter is Cheth, C-H-E-T-H. Each of the letters in the Hebrew alphabet have significance because it's a letter. It's also a picture. There's something it depicts. <laughs> so, okay, Lord. God begins to say, go, go look up what the, the word is. What the, okay. And, and the word, the letter Cheth comes from two other Hebrew letters that are separate and stand alone, but they're brought together by a bridge, making them a new letter. Does that make sense? If you were to look at it, it would look like two posts and this kind of curly Q thing on the top that bridges the two, creating a new letter. The Jews in their tradition believe that it's like the marriage, the husband and the wife, two separate individuals, are now made one through God. Therefore, holy matrimony. 
that make sense? But we're not just traditional. And neither are we Jewish. So there's a deeper meaning. Because we know that the physical marriage parallels Christ and the church. And then God spoke this to me. Can you put that verse up in Timothy? Second Timothy? God began to show me this. You know what that bridge was? For there is one God and one mediator between God and man. The man of Christ Jesus. He's the bridge that took me from sacrifice to his holiness. He's the bridge that said, you can't cross the chasm. I'm over here in my holiness and, and I'm, I'm superior and, and I'm holy and cherubs cry out my holiness and there's a great cavern between us and you're over here in your debauchery and your sin, Adam. You disobeyed and, and you lied and, and you, you sinned. But here's what I'll do. I'll become a bridge. I'll connect these two and make a new letter. Make a new thing in you God could have put mercy in the ninth stanza he could have put it in the seventh stanza but he has this unknown psalmist write about the fullness of his mercy in the eighth stanza knowing what that word or what that letter represents and I've come to tell somebody today that there is a bridge you don't have to live in your sin you don't have to die in your sin. You don't have to die. You can make it across the bridge to His holiness. Praise team, go ahead and come. As they were practicing, Brother Keith was in my office, Shannon, my study. Excuse me, I don't have an office. I had gone to do something. I come back in and he's crying. And he says, Pastor, he goes... Everyone out there singing has a, has a past. I'm paraphrasing what he said, but they've got a past. But they're singing the glory of God. You know why? Because people have realized I can go from being this sinner, this person of evil, this person of darkness. I can be delivered from the kingdom of darkness, one verse says, to the kingdom of light. Why? Because there's a bridge. Isn't he wonderful? Come on. No, there's not another, there's not mythology. There's not another uh, type of, of God uh, document out there where the, 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 the deity becomes his own creation in order to save them. In all of, all of history and, and literature and mythology, we have to obey God. And, 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 and whoever the God, the deity is, we, there's no way we can ever achieve His likeness. But in Christianity, God says, talking to some of the angels, maybe there's no way they can ever become like me unless I become like them. I know, angel, you don't understand it. I know I've created you for a being and you call out my holiness. But if I want them to be like me, 
I've got to go be like them. There's no other way. The gulf is too big. I've got to cross that divide. I've got to put myself in the virgin womb and come out. I've got oh, oh, oh. Why? Because I want them to be like me. I wonder this morning, is there anybody that needs to cross that bridge? Is there anybody that the enemy has been slapping you around, reminding you who you were, and you'd like to walk across that bridge and remind him today who you are in Christ? Is there anybody that hasn't yet received the Holy Spirit? Then today's your day. I want you to stand with me. They're going to sing here in just a moment. And, and when they do, these altars are open. I want you to come and pray. It's 1219, super early. Was that good? Okay. Good. A lot of times the preacher ain't even taking the pulpit until 1219. We got plenty of time to do some praying today. There's some of you that need to be reminded that there's a bridge. You know, here's the thing. Even though we're made in His likeness and even though we're filled with His Spirit, we still remember what we did. We still sometimes go back to the East and we remember, yeah, but in 96 I did this. 85 I did that. 2001 I did this. And I lied. I cheated on my taxes and I looked at a porn site and did that. And we remember those moments. Now, hey, if you've done that, please repent. I'm not, I'm not, not mocking repentance. I'm not, I'm not trying to candy coat sin, but, but hear me. If it's the enemy that's just, you know, condemning you. See, condemnation and conviction are different. Condemnation says, you're bad. And it just leaves you hanging. And you're like, okay, but now what? Conviction says, I don't like what you did, but, but here's, here's hope. Just, just take my hand. If, you, if you'll step out of that badness, I'll bring you into some goodness. That's what conviction does. Condemnation wants to keep us bound. But conviction says no. I, so is there anybody today that needs to be reminded that, you know what? God made a bridge. Let me say this. You ready? How far is the east and the west? Can I tell you this? Hebrews tells us that we need to leave some of the elementary principles. You know what he was talking about? We love to stay on repentance and baptism and Holy Ghost. But what about living in the glory? How far is the east and the west? It's getting away from the elementary principles where you have to repent every day. Where that's all we hear preached to getting behind the veil into His holiness, into the wonderful nature of who He is. When God appears to Isaiah, He tells him, His name shall be called. Anybody know the next word? Here's the thing. God, Jeff, wants to take us into the wonder of who He is. Let me take you behind the veil and show you some wonder. Let me show you some things at my mercy seat. Is there anybody today that wants to enter in? Is there anybody today that, that wants to go into the presence of God? 
then, then walk across the bridge. Make your way to an altar and say, God, I thank you that you were my sacrifice and I'm going to get behind the veil. I'm going to get into your presence. I'm going to get into the wonder of who you are.